Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of Ancient Office Hours. Who else is excited that Halloween is coming up in four days? This episode feels very appropriate to release because Dr. Young Richard Kim of the University of Illinois at Chicago and I were able to chat about a few traditionally taboo topics that, to some, may seem kind of spooky. I'm also very proud of this episode because this is the first, and hopefully not the last, conversation I was able to share with another Asian American in classics. We chatted about the dignity of work, the intersection of personal religion and the academic study of ancient religion, the experience of being an Asian in classics, and dropped some scorching hot takes on how to change the way we teach U.S. and ancient world history in high schools. I hope you enjoy this episode, and have a very safe and happy Halloween weekend. Thank you for joining me this bright and early, beautifully, wonderfully, mercifully cool day, because I woke up and it was beautifully like 69 degrees, and I was so happy because I hate the heat. Weather aside, I want to just jump right in and ask you, how did you find your way into classics? Yeah, that's a uh, a great question. Um, well, I guess the journey actually began for me, like a lot of people in elementary school with uh, the first exposure to Greek mythology. When I was in fourth grade, and this is going to probably disclose a little bit the, the age in which I grew up, but uh, you know, each week our teacher would play these cassette tapes and we would have these book with mythological stories in them. And so we would listen to this narrator, you know, with a little bit of sound effects, basically read adapted versions of Greek myths. And, you know, of course, stories of, of gods and, and heroes and, and fantastic monsters and this kind of thing that really piqued my curiosity at a young age for Greek mythology. And, and from that point forward, I think it really um, just kind of built over the years. And it's going to sound a little odd, but I've always been more skilled at uh, languages and social studies and English 
versus math and science. And so even in high school, I really gravitated toward those kinds of uh, subjects. And so I knew that once I went to, to college that uh, I wanted to continue studying, for me in particular, it was history, ancient history was what really got me. So, so that's what got me started. And, and of course, all throughout undergraduate, I, I studied classics and I studied uh, history. And then I went on to get a graduate degree in ancient history. Yeah, well, I sympathize with you on the math and science thing because I am so terrible at both. I hated, I just hated both subjects. I never wanted to take the classes. Yeah. I knew, I knew history and that's, I knew that was my jam uh, so, pretty much you know, my life. I have the additional uh, burden of being a son of a PhD in mathematics. My father is, is has a doctorate in math. And so I think I was always um, a bit of a disappointment when it came to that subject. I mean, I did calculus and stuff, but I just never, it just never clicked for me. So, so I knew that my destiny was not in anything really numerical. <laughs> you know, that may be some added pressure. Oh man, I feel lucky because I escaped that because I was adopted mm. from China by mm. luckily my wonderful yeah. Caucasian family. So it was like none of that Asian pressure to you must succeed, you must do math and you must be brilliant and then you must go solve cancer or <laughs> you know change the world, go to outer space. And so I was almost like allowed this freedom to mm. be a little more impractical because my parents always knew they were like, oh, well, she's just kind of creative and numbers. That's not her thing, whatever. She can do a lot of other stuff. Yeah. And there was a lot of running around and pretending like there was a lot of costume wearing when I was when I was younger, a lot mm. of running around my backyard, pretending that I was some great mythological hero. So I definitely get the you got onto it early, although for me, it was sixth grade, not fourth grade. So yeah. I'm a little surprised just to, for some context. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Because I don't know if it's like a staple of Il the Illinois Chicago system, but most of my friends growing up here, we didn't do any kind of mythology or even ancient history until at least fifth, but usually sixth grade. Yeah, no, I, so I grew up in Southern California in Orange County. So I, I have no idea what the curriculum is like nowadays, but certainly when I was in elementary school, this is in the 80s, <laughs> we did have mythology. In fact, I, I remember our teacher even gave us some um, lessons in art history. So, so it was really cool, you know, because we got exposed to some things that we might not otherwise have been, especially in, in the kind of testing heavy uh, curricula that, that really dominate primary education now. So yeah, we were able to do some some interesting things and creative things uh, and explore subjects that I think that were that were great for all of us, you know, because um, any kind of exposure to the different sort of traditions of the past, I think are, are good for students. For sure. I know you just mentioned that your dad has his uh, <laughs> doctorate in mathematics and so obviously yeah. very math oriented. But from your own personal like family history, since I know for a lot of Asian cultures, like holding on to tradition in the past is very important. Yeah. Was there any sort of exposure to Asian mythology when you were younger? Yeah, definitely. Because um, I remember my mom bought, there were, there were these Korean, Korean children's books and, and they included uh, this, this series that she bought was basically like 20 volumes of stories uh, from Korean, the Korean mythological tradition, and, and they were in Korean. So that was, of course, a challenge because my mom was trying to teach me to read Korean. Uh, it, you know, maybe it, come to think of it, it might have been bilingual on one side, um, 
Korean and on the other side, English, like a, like a lobe of Korean mythology. But, but it was, it was great because, because I learned some of these stories. And so I remember like one story of a man who was cursed with this kind of lump that was hanging from the side of his face. And I think he made a deal with some kind of a goblin and ultimately wanted to have that lump attached to someone that he was a rival with. And then what ended up happening is he ended up getting two lumps. And, you know, so there's a moral at the story, you know, like if you treat your enemies badly, then, you know, it's going to come back and, and bite you. And so, so yeah, so there were definitely some Korean traditional folk tales, as we would call them, that I learned as a kid. I guess my, I, I must have resisted them a little bit as well, because my mom was like trying to get me to read Korean and I didn't want to. And of course, in, in retrospect, I regret that, you know, I wish I had really spent the time to learn to read it well. So, so I think that's in my parents, because they were immigrants from Korea, we, re we really grew up in a household that clung to our Korean culture, you know, so uh, the foods that we ate, the languages that, you know, my, my parents spoke to us in Korean, you know, there were a lot of little things about uh, my upbringing as well as my siblings that, yeah, that, that were very traditionally Korean, which I think in, in, again, looking back on that is absolutely a part of who I am now, an important part of that, yeah. Yeah, and we make such a big deal about the, this weird juxtaposition, right, of East versus West, and in, in almost every aspect that we can find in the US, at least it's pitting East and West, which yeah. I don't really understand why we need to do that in the first place, but yeah. I digress. <laughs> But when you knew math wasn't your thing and you're like, okay, I like this history thing. I like this mythology thing. Was there any pushback from your family when you were like, oh, I like this Greek stuff. I like this, you know, bedrock of Western civilization. And was your family at any point just like, but we're Asian. We're, we're from the East. So why aren't you doing Asian mythology as a career? No, you know, my parents were very supportive, which I think, again, I know a lot of others have had epic clashes with their folks about, you know, pursuing anything that's not either practical or, you know, um, able to generate financial security. I understand that. But my, my parents were actually quite supportive. It was, it was a struggle, right? Because I think especially in primary and secondary school, you still have to perform well in order to get into college, right? And so I, I still had to study math and do it, do well in it or as well as I could, as well as science. Um, and, I, and I was okay, you know, I, I did fine. But my grades were always stronger in the humanities. Um, so I think my parents realized it. And then I think maybe the kicker was back when I took the SAT, you know, this is in the, well, gosh, should be the 90s now, early 90s. You know, there was only a verbal and a math score. And, you know, my verbal score was higher than my math score, you know, in the end. And so I think my, I think at that point, maybe my parents finally realized, okay, this, this, this person is not going to be the math, the wizard, you know, that, that his father was. And so or is maybe there was a sense of resignation, but once they, they realized that, then they really kind of freed me to pursue whatever I wanted to in college. And so that was great, you know, and I, I knew I wanted to study history and, um, and classics. And so they were, they, yeah, they were very generous in their support. Um, so I think that really helped because I know for a lot of others, you know, who don't get that, then it becomes this kind of epic struggle and, and a kind of clash of identity too. Yeah, I met more than one person in my department at Mizzou who they told me it was like battle royale every time <laughs> on the phone with their parents. Okay, have you switched your major to something that'll actually bring you happiness, money, right, <laughs> successful career? And and they would be like, no, no, still, still yeah. here, still toiling away. Yeah, but and, yeah. You know, having been in higher ed now for a long time, there is a stereotype, right, that if you study philosophy or art history or you know or 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 do you know actually produce art, 
that you're going to to starve, right, or or have a really hard time. But I, I think that's I think that's problematic narrative, you know, because especially like students who study philosophy and, and have really great analytical ability and and the ability to articulate arguments, they they end up in a variety of different kinds of jobs and professions. And so that's something I try to teach my students too is that. Uh, a, an education that's well grounded in the humanities or broadly in the liberal arts, that, that, that actually opens a lot of different doors. And employers are looking for, for people who can think and, and read and, and make an argument. It's not like when you come out of college as a chemistry major that you're a chemist, right? I mean, there's additional training that comes in whatever profession you ended up uh, going to. And so the humanities really creates a kind of well-rounded um, person. Uh, and I think, um, you know, majoring in any of those fields or double majoring, I think that's a great thing. But I know there's a lot of parents who say, no, you must major in business or else, you know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> I met so many, too many un unfortunate people in, in college who felt trapped. And so every day they would kind of look a little miserable. Yeah. You'd go, you know, hey, you all right there? And they'd go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> I just have this business thing or yeah. an accounting class that I really don't want to go to. And I remember it, it was never starker than when we would compare schedules mm -hmm. and when you would, you know, try to sync up your schedule so you could hang out with somebody. So you're like, okay, so what's your class schedule like? Do, yeah. do you have a break when I have a break? And so when people would see my classes, which I piled on just classics, class after classics and then some art <laughs> history in there and all, all these fun classes. And then I would see my friend's schedule, which is like business and accounting and then, you know, meteorology. And they just look at my schedule and go, well, where are those classes? How did I not, can I, can I take these? Or even if they could take them, you know, I, I can only take one. That's not fair. And I was like, well, man, just switch your yeah. to classics. Then you can have a schedule just like mine. And, you know, and then you get the fun. Oh, ha, 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 ha. never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, imagine if every student could actually um, study exactly what they're passionate or interested in, you know? Wouldn't that be so revolutionary? It would, wouldn't it? And I think there'd be so many more happy people. But, you know, and I know that the cost of higher ed is obviously a concern, and especially for parents. And so, you know, there is this sense in which um, if a parent or parents are going to make an investment, you know, they want to make sure that when their children come out of their undergraduate, that there's going to be a, a payoff, so to speak, right? But, you know, I, I think if we could, if we could change that story a bit, that, that would really, yeah, I think it'd make our, our society a happier society. But. I think it's a bad investment to send kids yeah. off to this environment where they're supposed to be able to discover themselves and what makes them happy to send them off with this like mission that will make that they know makes them miserable. I'm like, that's a terrible investment because you want a bunch of kids who go to all these classes and get the degree, but come out kind of like zombies, a little dead inside, a little dead looking on the outside because they're so miserable with what they had to do. But if, if we allowed all kids to just go to college and do exactly whatever it is they want to do. I think there's this like false dichotomy of, well, it doesn't matter, just take the punches, but you'll get the good major that makes you money and then the money will bring you happiness. And I'm like, right. no, it should be the other way around. You should be happy doing what you love in college because if you can be happy doing whatever it is, you will just be happy. Like, I, I don't know a single person who is doing something they love, but then is sitting here like, I regret everything because I'm not making the six, seven, eight figure paycheck. Oh, I'm so miserable. I'm like, no, everyone I know is like, yeah, okay, maybe I struggle a little to pay the bill, but as long as I get paid and, and I'm doing what I love, I'm fine. Yeah.
Yeah, and I also think that, like, I wish we would have a different perspective, for example, on community colleges, right? Because these are wonderful resources that, again, uh, this this kind of pathway of graduate high school, then go to a four-year university, even that is not for everyone, you know? And so I think people should have the chance to maybe take time off, go to a community college and take some courses to see, you know, what would be the, 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 the right path to, to, to pursue, especially like in, when I was growing up, you know, it, it would have been unheard of for me uh, or anyone in my generation, the children of immigrants from Korea, to like opt to go to a community college. That would just be non-acceptable. There are wonderful teachers and um, great courses in community colleges. And, and I think that's a really a resource that is unfortunately in this country undersourced, you know, that, that we really could do a lot more with that. And, and uh, I, I, would, I, I would advocate for having it free, you know, if like our public education system, I mean, if, if we could make community college and, you know, if we could make that free, that'd be wonderful. Um, yeah, that's a that's a real hot take right there. I, it, well, it, should, it shouldn't it shouldn't be, but it is a hot take, which I completely agree with. I was just about I was thinking and I was just about to say, I think it, we should make them free because then you can also say, OK, well, even if you don't know if four year degree at a university is for you, here's your like testing phase. Here's your starter phase. Right. You can go you kind of be experimental, see if this college thing is for you. And then it's like, you know, OK, do two years at a free community college and you're like oh this this college thing is for me then yeah. you can go to then you can transfer into whatever i think that would just produce a, a lot more faith in the, in the system in in the college system i mean we're, we're just so cynical and people who don't get the chance to go to college or who don't want to they get yeah. very cynical about it because it just seems like it's laid out as a very structured thing which it, it really shouldn't be I, I don't think enough people understand college really is a sort of fluid thing I don't know. It's kind of like trade school, right? I know too many people who don't want to go to trade school, but do want to go to trade school. But they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, I don't know. There should there should be a period where you can try out trade school. Yeah. You know, for a free year or something and be like, okay, is this for me? Or should I go, you know, do more book learning? Right, right. And I think that's another, you know, kind of, this is kind of a bigger question, but like the, the dignity of work, right? I mean, whatever work a person does, you know, that's something that that know is part of a person's identity and and a sense of of being and i hope that we could become a society that you know whether you're a professor or if you're a a plumber it doesn't matter you know those are 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 respective crafts and traditions and skills that i can't do the the work of an electrician for example but i have great respect for electricians because they're they're trained in their craft and they can do it well and so i wish we would have this broader sense of like everyone's work is is something that is is worth worthy but you know there's there's a lot of arguments i suppose to be made but it resonates as someone who started her career in politics i went right out to dc did the cliche intern on capitol hill thing but i did i learned so much and one of my favorite contemporary politicians is actually Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio. And he had this whole sort of working tour that he did going around the state of Ohio. And he called the tour the dignity of work. And it's because it resonates. And his whole message is in this society where we prize education level and you know how educated can you be? How 
how can you one up the next person in the room? Yeah. And, you know, that leads to all this resentment and this stigma and this whole, oh, well, I don't have a college degree. Oh, well, you have a PhD. Well, then you must think that I'm just this little person and right. I don't matter. It's very interesting that you mentioned the dignity of work because I was just thinking about, I was in a conversation about this the other day with somebody and I was thinking, yeah, that you, to go back to your electrician example, do I look down because they went to trade school and learned to be an electrician? Heck no, because guess what? I would electrocute myself and I would die if I tried to do anything electrical. You know, my Wi-Fi breaks, my TV, yeah. my anything breaks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, if my toilet breaks and we don't have plumbers, I'm, I'm it's literally going to explode in my face. Or no, my- no, I agree. And unfortunately, in our country, you know, wages are too low. Healthcare is too expensive, you know, so if, if we could fix some of these societal ills, you know, we, we could be in a different place and, and really think differently about work. But unfortunately, there are forces that go against that, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I wish we could become different um, and maybe we will. Yeah, for sure. So getting a uh, that was a fantastic tangent to go off on, but getting a little back to yeah. when you're in college. So I had supportive parents as well who just told me, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever you like, do it. So I definitely didn't have any pushback from them when I was like, I want to be a classics major and study the bedrock of civilization, yada, yada, yada. But did you encounter any sort of personal pushback where you're kind of sitting there at any point and then you suddenly think to yourself, maybe this isn't the greatest idea because this seems like a really hard thing. And and then you have all the languages piled on there and then all these, you know, restrictive forms of gatekeeping to even get into classics. Did you just kind of sit down at any point? Maybe, you know, junior year, even senior year when you're like about to graduate and then you're like, um, actually this is looking a little harder. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess during my undergraduate studies, I never felt that. And in fact, like I loved what I was doing, especially when it, it comes to languages. I, I really enjoy studying and, and, and communicating and speaking in other languages. And so I knew once I had decided I was going to go to graduate school in you know, ancient studies, classics, whatever, you know, I knew that languages were kind of one of the tools that I needed to, to succeed. And so, you know, by my junior and senior year, I took a fifth year too. I was basically just taking classes in Greek, Latin, German, and French, and, you know, just studying languages. And, 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 and I realized too, that, that I was quite privileged to be able to do that, right? Because I had supportive parents, I had the financial means to, to do this. And so I recognized that. So I, I didn't feel that gatekeeping, although I'll tell you, like, where, where I did have this moment where I was teetering between doing something else is, so I applied to graduate school twice. The first time I applied, I took the GRE. It was the computer adapted version. So it was like this version, and maybe it still is now where you have to take the GRE on a screen. And so I took that test and I bombed it. (laughs) And so I had a really horrible GRE score. And so I applied to graduate schools, just four schools that first time. And uh, because I had such a horrible GRE score, I only got into one school with partial funding, which was, I guess, a miracle in and of itself. And so this stupid exam, you know, the standardized test was a kind of barrier to my um, going to graduate school. And so at that point, I was talking to my dad and I was like, you know, um, maybe this isn't the right path for me. You know, I obviously couldn't hack it on this test. And he, you know, he kind of metaphorically slapped me upside the head and said, um, study for it and do it again. And that's why I took a fifth year. I delayed graduating to take some more classes, but then also to take the GRE again. And so I took the GRE this time in the paper and pencil format, um, which was what I was already accustomed to. 
Uh, and then, by the way, that speaks to um, standardized tests don't actually test your aptitude or your intelligence or anything like that. It just tests like whether or not you know the test taking gimmicks and the algorithms and that kind of thing. And so when I took the written version versus the computer adapted version, I did really well. Then I applied more widely. I applied to like 10 schools. I got into half of them, got full funding packages from two of them. And so I actually had, again, the, the luxury and the privilege of choice of where to go to graduate school. But I almost gave it up because of this stupid test. And so in that way, it wasn't the field itself that functioned as the kind of gatekeeper that might have kept me out. But it was, uh, it, it was kind of the, the apparatus of graduate school and the, the GRE exam. You know, I don't know if that's what you've heard from other people, but that was, that was the point that actually I had thought, okay, this is not for me. And fortunately, my dad's wisdom kind of prevailed and I tried again and I put my mind to it and I, I was able to, yeah, to go to grad school um, without, without accruing debt. So that was a, a real uh, blessing and a privilege. So, Well, obviously you made it and you got the PhD, you got the shiny degree that says, hey, I'm smart about this really like exclusive thing. Woo-hoo. So turning a little to your research, though, what was it about Byzantine period? Because obviously, I think most people, when they think of classics, they get this idea that, okay, classics is just the fourth and fifth century BC, or yeah. it's just Bronze Age collapse, or we, we like pigeonhole classics into these short periods, well, relatively short periods of time. And yeah. we just think, okay, well, it only encapsulates this. Was that you loved the Byzantine period? Because it, it the period spoke for itself or was it a little bit of that sort of rebellious well I don't want to just study what everyone else is doing that's boring I'm going to pick something a little obscure but also that interests me and I'm going to do that these are great questions you know so when I was when I was an undergrad I went to UCLA for undergraduate so you know as I was taking classics courses and, and Greek and Latin courses you know I was reading I remember I, I took a course in Thucydides we read, we read, I read a, a course in Plato and Aristophanes and in Cicero and Virgil, you know, so I was reading all of the, the texts that we think of when we think of classics, right, the canon, so to speak. There was a history course that I took with a professor by the name of Claudia Rapp, and she taught basically a course in late antiquity. And so late antiquity is this, this interesting period in ancient studies that is sort of in between spaces, you know, so late antiquity, sometimes we think of it as as the name implies, a part of the ancient, right? So it's looking back to the tradition and the, of the of the Greeks and the Romans, and you know whether it's it's maintaining a sense of continuity or or a break from that, it, it's it's kind of field's uh, relative position is looking backward. But on the other hand, late antiquity is also a kind of a forward-looking field in time, you know, and depending on what area you're in. Geographically, you know, we might be entering into what scholars have called the Byzantine Empire, or if you're looking more westerly, then then maybe we're entering in what scholars have called the medieval, early medieval, you know, and again, that shows you this is all kind of all made up anyway, right? These are periodizations and categorizations that scholars have decided to help us organize our knowledge. But for me, late antiquity was such a fascinating period. And so what really got me excited about doing graduate work in late antiquity was while well, taking this course with Claudia Rapp. And then in particular, I was really interested in Constantine, this emperor, the first Christian emperor, interested in the Council of Nicaea, this event that changed the, the sort of changed the, the course of history, right? But so my interest in, in for graduate work was in late antiquity, and that spills naturally over then into what we call the Byzantine Empire, right? And the Byzantine Empire really is the Roman Empire, just continuing on in the East. Yeah, I, for one, I think we should have a, like a much more expansive 
view of the classics, right? And classics really isn't just about Greece and Rome either, right? Because if we're looking at the Mediterranean, you know, it's such a diverse and multilingual and multicultural world that has so many different kinds of peoples and, and, and traditions and institutions. And so I like to have this, this expansive view geographically, but also chronologically, right? I mean, the ancient world or its, you know, legacy and its continuity, you know, I, I think a, a big kind of picture is very exciting for me to, to study because having a good foundation in what we kind of call the classics and the, the canon authors, that enables me then to look at these later periods and read authors who were also reading those same texts and then to be able to make these kinds of connections. And for me, that's what's really exciting about late antiquity and early Byzantium. Yeah. So I love how you mentioned Constantine and this idea that he's the first Christian emperor. You know, he's the first one that they got. They they got this pagan and they were like, aha, no yeah. more. Pagan, no more. And he's yeah. he's really changing stuff now. This kind of stems from almost something c- coming right out of my personal life and background. So I'll quickly just give everyone a little background on it. My best friend from college, my roommate, lived with her. She is doing a master's in theology at Notre Dame. And she's really interested in like the history of Catholicism, Christianity, all that stuff kind of past to present. So now that you mention Constantine, it, it just occurred to me, we were having a conversation the other day about how it was shocking to her to find out that many scholars of history, many classicists, in fact, study the religious aspects of the ancient world from a non-religious perspective. Like it didn't occur to her that you could be an atheist and deeply study the religious parts of the past. From this conversation that's been circulating in my mind, I kind of have a two-parter for you. One, did you grow up religious? Uh And two, do you think it's an advantage to be religious and study ancient religion or is an advantage to be more atheistic or fluid or secular and then study ancient religion yeah wow <laughs> these are t- these are great questions i mean so you know i i grew up my parents became christians when i was in elementary school and i became a christian when i was in high school and i still am and so i have a faith commitment at the same time i'm also trained as a classicist and ancient historian right so you know one of the things i learned in graduate school and this is a really important thing for the process for me is that grow up in a religious tradition you know you you learn a narrative of the history of Christianity in my case, that in retrospect is quite simplistic, right? That, and this is something that I teach my students too, right? That there's one narrative that says that, you know, Jesus taught his disciples a theology, right? Or a theology about him. And then those disciples understood it exactly as Jesus taught it. And they all agreed. And then all of those first disciples then taught the next generation, and then the next generation accepted it, received it, and understood it in the exact same way. And so it's almost like this kind of unbroken line, what now, you know, what we would say is like the corrective belief or the orthodox belief. And that somehow each time it's passed down generation after generation, it remains like pristine and intact, right? But having studied now the history of Christianity, and this is actually what my early research, you know, the early part of my career was dedicated to studying this particular development, Christian belief and practices and its transmission, it's so messy. From the very beginning to that first generation, like the earliest 
followers of Jesus, the earliest Christians, there was so much disagreement even among them. This rosy picture of everything kind of being passed down, unbroken, I, I, I think that's overly simplistic. And in fact, it's it's really, really messy and, and complicated and political and uh, sometimes violent, you know, so, so, so but, but that's a process that works itself out. Now, as a historian, as someone who studied this, you know, I, I look at these developments through those lenses. But does that necessarily mean then that on my kind of personal faith commitment that I, I say, oh, I'm just going to toss it all out now. That's not me. It, that's not how it applies to me. And in fact, for me, those complexities and those tensions and those uncertainties kind of enhance my own personal faith, right? But here's the other thing too, is that no one writes, no one does what, what we do as historians or classicists without their own respective, depending on what word you want to use, baggage or lenses or biases or whatever. Everyone comes to our respective subjects with some kind of angle. So even if we're reading Virgil, you know, the Aeneid, how we mechanically translate the words from Latin to English is one process. And there's all sorts of biases that go into that. But then how we actually interpret those texts, either the translation or the what we say about them, we all come with different things, right? And different lenses. And so I think we need to be honest with that. And I think that's really something that Again, in our American kind of culture today, it's a real problem when, when people say there's only one right storyline or version or narrative. Now, you can go off the rails, and a lot of people do, right? And the sources and the, the methods, some people, yeah, I mean, twist and turn and manipulate and, and, and do that. And, and I think that's a problem. But, but on the other hand, you know, this idea that there's like objectivity, right, that, that very word itself is, is really problematic, right? Because no matter what, there's always some angle that we're coming with. Uh, there's something that we bring to the table. I think the best scholarship and the best kind of community that we form is when we're honest about that and then we, we converse about that. There are gonna certainly be points where we disagree. Like, so Constantine is like a classy example. There's so many different interpretations of this dude, right? Some say he was a religious zealot. Others would say the complete opposite, that the guy was just purely political and his conversion was just a, a move to, to garner supporters and power. And then there's all sorts of arguments in between. The work that we do as historians and classicists and scholars and students is exploring those in-between spaces, right? And coming up with the different arguments and interpretations, right? So, you know, an example like him should help us realize that Constantine, this really important historical figure, there are lots of different ways to interpret this guy, some that seem to be mutually exclusive, but that's how history works, right? I mean, we're interpreting sources and what's available to us. We obviously can't talk to him, and so we're doing our best to try to understand him, but we could come up with some very different answers. And so that just shows you then that this whole process, this whole interpretive work that we do, there's room for that. So then for your friend who studies theology, you know, sometimes theologians and philosophers do this too. You know, sometimes there's this idea that kind of like, the, the theology kind of plops down from heaven. And then our job is to kind of figure out what came to us from heaven. And then, you know, and then to be able to write about that and to, to, to write books. And it's a process. It's, it's, and, it's, and the humans are involved in this process. And so it's a lot messier than I think sometimes, especially when I was younger, I was led to believe. But for me, that's a that's that realization is a great realization. I think it's really interesting, but also I think it speaks a little to the heart of what I've been noticing in the past three, four years, yeah. which is 
most people who I have met or interacted with or just know personally who study any aspect of ancient religion, whether it's from the classical lens of ancient Greek religion or Byzantine religion or even down to Mesopotamian and Egyptian religion. Mm-hmm. I think there's this idea that if you're going to go into religious studies or the religious studies department or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of like preconceived biases against, oh, well, you wouldn't go into ancient religion unless you're religious yourself. Like why on earth would you put yourself through that if you don't care? For all these people out here who like myself, uh, my entire family's Jewish, mm-hmm. but I would say I personally grew up pretty secularly and then as an adult I kind of just drifted off into the more first I hit agnosticism and then I just at this point I'm probably closer to an atheist I don't really know it doesn't really matter to me but when I talk about wanting to study ancient religion or if I tell someone that I have an interest in this either get oh that's so interesting you're gonna bring your secular brain to it and then you're gonna help from a non-background religious bias, you're not going to let it seep into your analysis of things. And then other people, they just go, oh, so you must be very deeply, deeply religious. <laughs> like, what can we do to stop this weird stigma of either you're super religious, if that's what you want to study, versus, yeah. oh, okay, we'll just go and make it more secularize it if you're not. Like, yeah. how do we stop that? Yeah, I, I think one thing is like, we got to get rid of that that dichotomy it's like one or the other the binary right and again like for me as i as i've been sort of sharing with you like the in-between spaces is really i think where most of us are you know let's say you want to do something religious studies oriented you can come to religious studies with a faith commitment you you need to be honest about that right and that those particular commitments might affect and inform how you read things and how you interpret things. But the same applies to someone who has zero commitments or who who's an atheist, right? Like that person also brings to the table some assumptions and some maybe um, priorities. But again, like it's not either or. It's like, it's not you're, you're either have to be like fully religious or atheist. And depending on which of those two you choose, then how you come to religious studies or theology, you know, you're going to have these vastly different results. I think, you know, we, we need to be honest with ourselves, but then um, figure out how, like sometimes like Constantine again comes up, right? Some, so, so someone who's very cynical about religion cannot look at Constantine and say, oh, this guy actually believed, like he actually had a religious experience and then became a Christian, right? And that inability to even recognize that as a possibility, that really pigeons, pigeonholes the interpretation that's available, right? If you can only see this as a cynical uh, or political move, then that's the only result you're going to come up with, right? On the other hand, the, the person who might be deeply religious and a Christian says, Constantine, you know, God gave him these visions that led to his conversion. Maybe that person is unable to think, oh, there's actually some political uh, advantage to be gained by this, right? And so again, those extremes, they don't, they don't actually produce uh, a conversation and, and a debate. That I think is what we want to be doing is saying, oh, what, what if there are different combinations of, of these different possibilities? A genuine religious experience, politically motivated, advantageous? Sure, why not? You know, that, doesn't that make uh, Constantine seem actually more human? You know, and so I think that's part of the thing, too, is that we need to, yeah, to, 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 to be honest about our humanness as we put forth our explanations of why things happen the way they do. And I think a lot of that is a byproduct of 
a lot of people they like to frame history in that you know it's it's so long ago so we have this sort of bird's eye view where we can go and, and see all these ancient peoples and ooh what decisions did they make one thing that i always kind of maintain is they are still just an older version of us and the moment that you start treating these historical figures as anything other than just super ancient humans like us who had similar not obviously the same because technology but similar yeah. issues human yeah. issues yeah. and i'm like that you're kind of you're you've lost you you've lost the point of of studying history if it's not deeply emotional study of what it meant to be a, a human just mm. in the past that's it's, a great way to play it yeah. It's just interesting to me when I hear fellow historians sometimes just be like, oh, well, we would never do something that's silly. That's stupid. I mean, why would they do that? And I'm like, because they're human, because I'm human. My situation might not look like theirs, but if I was in that situation, hey, maybe I would do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's that's the beauty of the humanities, right? The disciplines of the humanities. Not only are we exploring contemporaneously, like the differences between you and I even, or, you know, the, the countries that, that are part of this, this world that we live in, but we're also um, chronologically also looking at the shared experience of humanity, right? And I think you, that's a really good point, right? So sometimes we think of Constantine as almost like a otherworldly figure, right? He was a human, you, you know, he was a dude. <laughs> and, and so whatever issues that, um, yeah, not the same, but there are going to be these things about our humanity that, that we have in common. Exploring our subjects in that way, I think, is what makes the humanity such an important part of an education, is we, we study these different people in these traditions to understand each other and to understand ourselves. Yeah. You and I know we could wax eloquently about yeah. the, the inherent value of the humanities mm -hmm. to, as historians, we can literally take what we study and say, look, this is so relevant to today. This is essentially... Yes, we study these people, but these are these were the contemporary issues of their time. So, you know, take cut paste and and sort of change things. But look, it's uh, they they mirror each other. We know that. I think it's definitely nice to have that affirmed, but also hopefully to show other people when they think of it as no, this is just this this ancient thing. You know, ten thousand years ago, we we just talk about these in theoretical long terms. We have no concept of what a long time is. I mean, we live in a country that's what around two hundred and fifty years old. We have no idea what you know ancient really is. <laughs> just you know, you yeah. bandy these numbers about, and you're like, okay, well, that's really really old. That's that's what I can say about yeah, it. So, yeah. no, I, I'm so you know, I never tell my students history repeats itself. I think that's a bad um, way of thinking about history, right? Because every context, every situation, every time, every culture, every people is different. So I, I don't want students to walk away from my courses thinking, oh, this is just the same thing that happened 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, and it's just happening again, right? But rather, um, I want them to understand there are things about humans that are consistent, right? And so we can identify what those kinds of things are. And then I think we can talk about our contemporary experience and the things that are going on in our world, knowing that humans behave pretty, pretty similarly, you know, but, but that doesn't mean that, you know, X event or Y event from antiquity is the same thing, right? So a lot of times you hear people talk about the fall of the Roman empire or even the fall of the Roman Republic and then say, America is going through the same thing, right? It just oversimplifies and, and kind of decontextualizes these two very different times and places. Are there some aspects within both of those developments that we might, I see as patterns 
and reflections of, of, of human behavior. Yeah, definitely, right? But it doesn't mean it's the same thing. And that, I think that's an important lesson to take away from the studying the humanities too. Definitely. And I mean, going along with this theme of, of similarities, right? Okay, so we've now established that no, nothing is going to happen exactly the same way. Everything's going to be different. Nothing mm-hmm. is going to actually repeat itself just the way it was. Mm-hmm. But if we're taking certain similarities in situations, one thing that is definitely, as I see it, carried on from ancient to modern times yeah. is these places, this this Mediterranean world, mm-hmm. especially Greece in the fifth century. Yeah. It, definitely longer but um, i'm just going to focus on the 5th century cuz that's where that's my that's my wheelhouse everyone was super xenophobic super like not welcoming we know what they thought of the persians on these these barbarians because you know all they spoke was bar 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 <laughs> if we're talking about similarities in attitudes and cultural things then there's this definite hostility baked into the mediterranean world of the other and the different mm-hmm. and if we're talking about parallels to the modern world one thing that i definitely i was quite excited to to be able to have you on for the for the specific purpose of asking which is what is it like being an asian person a minority in classics because if we're studying places that were so hostile to difference and other you know what would they think of like two asian people studying them and sort of (laughs) criticizing what they did wrong and sort of trying to praise what they did right even though there's always these complicated backstories but you know that's just one thing that is carried on which is yeah and 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 the field itself there's a reason it's stereotyped down to well it's just a study of old white people and blah 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 because that's all they liked uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, complicated question. So yeah, how do I respond? Um, there, there was probably a time in my life where I wouldn't want to have been identified as a Korean American ancient historian, a Korean American classicist, right? There was probably a time in my life where I just wanted to be known for my work, right? That the work would speak for itself. But I think as I've grown older and, and as I've tried to figure out who I am, it's, it's a lifelong process, right? But I'm a, like a hundred percent Korean American, and I'm, I'm proud of that. It, it is is such a part of who I am that I can't deny that, you know. And so, even as I'm in this kind of academic world where I am undoubtedly a minority, I will I'm proud of that, and I want and I want to be in that field. and And what I want to see is more more diversity in my academic community, right? So I want to see more. Asian people. I want to see more Black people. I want to see more Brown people. Like everyone, you know, there is this ideological battle that's being waged right now in the public sphere, and unfortunately, so much of that is driven by like misinformation and misinterpretation, and you know the the unfortunate like culture wars that will want to fight. You know, and classics becomes this locus for a lot of those culture wars, because some people think of it as the legacy or the bedrock of Western civilization, whatever that means, without criticizing and analyzing the problems within that storyline, right? That classics is a part of this elite white male world and tradition of education that has come from Europe to here. And if we can't dismantle some of it and really self-analyze and critique that that legacy of studying the past, then classics is, that is all it's going to be, this kind of elite white male vestige of, of, of the past. But we can become a field where people like you and me, with all of our differences and diversity, can come to the field and 
read the texts and explain things using the different lenses that we come with, that can make the field better. And that's what I'm hopeful for, right? So yeah, so for me, my person is, is such an essential part of the work that I do. It doesn't always come out in what I write, you know, but the way I think about things, I, I must recognize that my own experiences and my background play a part in that. And I think that's something to celebrate, not to say that we need to, to be all the same. You know, I, I would rather we be all very different. I mean, there's, for me, there's no room for racism, right? And there's no room for um, uh, all of the isms that plague our society. So transphobia, homophobia, all that. I don't want that to be in my fields, things that I do. And same goes for white supremacy, right? And again, those kinds of narratives, I think uh, we need to purge those because they're, they're, they're nefarious, you know, they're, they're bad. And so if we can do the good work where we, again, figure out what it means to be a human, both then and now, and then become better a society, that's, that's to me the potential. And that's why the diversity and the inclusion and the accessibility are so important for classics. And it's struggling with that right now. I think it really is. It's trying to figure that out. What's the future? And I think, you know, because right now I, I think that the popular thing is to set up, we're going to set up a range of diversity and inclusion, either policies or yeah. boards or whatever. And, and to yeah. a lot of people that rings really hollow and it's like, okay, well, another set of initiatives, which they don't explain. And we don't even know what the heck that'll be yeah. other than they say it and it's, Sounds nice. If we're thinking about like real world solutions, is that maybe teaching more classes about, you know, women or slaves and foreigners in the ancient world or something that that throws like a tangible almost bone out to people of color? Because what I've been noticing, because I have a lot of friends who are Egyptologists and one thing they say is because that field also is really a, a colonialist white sort of subject of study, at least at the academic level, it does not appeal and there's nothing really about it as it's currently constructed that, that makes it seem very inviting. So I know a lot of people have said things like, well, now they choose to, if they go into Egyptology at all, they study it through the African prism. So they'll, they'll so maybe they'll do it as a special study or they've crammed it in with a subset of African studies, which mm -hmm. is great, which is awesome. It's different, but that doesn't actually help people get into the current field of Egyptology if you want to yeah. change like that one you you can't just sort of go and hide in the African studies department and be like okay I'm doing Egypt I don't know how we make that better for classics itself because it, it is really hard yeah I think as we've established but you know beyond just promising a bunch of inclusion initiatives I don't really I'm not obviously an educator at the university level but I mean if they put you in charge and they say all right try to get more minorities to come in and don't just present them with this a la carte menu of okay white after white after white thing and these people yeah. and yeah. powerful men like <laughs> what do you do yeah well so yeah great 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 these are great sub sub subjects to explore and like you know sometimes the polychromy debate about sculpture is is it, it, for me exemplifies this too often we present the greeks and the romans just like the the perfectly white sculpture of the venus de, de milo right like and and that's what we give our students right the, the perfect white sculpture too often we present the the perfect pristine spotless blemishless statue of the greeks and the romans right metaphorically speaking Whereas in reality, it's like so messy. And as you said, right, slavery, misogyny, hatred or defining and, and creating an other, the, these are part of the story of the Greeks and the Romans as well. And so we need to, 
to teach that as 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 importantly. And so, like a, a great example of this, because you're such a big fan of the fifth century in in Athens, is the the very development of democracy. Right. It is on the one hand a towering achievement, right, by the Athenians and other Greeks. It only applied to less than half of the population, and it was to the exclusion of many. People. And so, even though democracy was such a wonderful thing, right, in terms of governance and participation in it, it it wasn't available to all. The pristine white statue version will say the Greeks invented democracy, which then eventually spread to other parts of Europe, to America, and here we are, right. Mm-hmm. And we need to go spread it on the rest of the world. That's the white marble pristine statue version. But then the the multicolored one says no, democracy like. In fact, was a kind of failed experiment. It didn't last that long in Greece relative to this, you know, where we are today. And and it didn't even it wasn't even practiced in every part of Greece, right? So it wasn't that the Greeks, all of them, embraced democracy. Only some of them did. And the version that they eventually came up with was really messy, right? And 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 even within that, like certain individuals, people who could speak really well, could sway the audiences to vote for things that might seem reprehensible to us, right? And Thucydides is a great text to do that, right? And again, like that text is, you know, Thucydides provides us so many examples of the messiness of the Greeks or the Athenians or the Spartans or whoever we're talking about, right? So I think we have to present for the student, my students now, the multicolored version of these Greeks and the Romans, right? At the same time, that multicoloredness, like now, there's some really cool things that people have done, especially in, in um, theater and in Greek drama, where we have diverse authors and writers who are bringing to classics these m- multiple perspectives that help us to understand more richly who these, who these Greeks and Romans that we're so interested in were, right? So I, I'm thinking of like scholars like Shelley Haley and Patrice Rankine and Emily Greenwood and Danielle Padilla Peralta and Rosa Andujar. Like all these people are like bringing to classics these different perspectives that I think will make the field better and more rich and more appealing to students, especially of, of color, right? Of uh, non-white backgrounds. And I think that's something that we absolutely need in the field to to revitalize it. Otherwise, it's going to, it's going to die in public universities, regional universities, and liberal arts colleges that are not elite. And it's only going to survive in IVs, the the public IVs, and the elite small liberal arts colleges, which are very difficult to get to if you're a person of color too, right? So classics needs to figure out how to become much more expansive, inclusive, diverse, all of that from a younger age too. Like we need to also do this not just at the college level, because if it's at the college level, it's perhaps even already too late. So in primary and secondary, and I think that's something where we need to do a lot more work is like, like I said, right? Because I, I, I started my interest in classics in fourth grade. Can we do that again? Can we bring back some of this interest in the Mediterranean cultures in a more nuanced way? Can we bring that to primary and secondary? I hope so. That would be, that would be a, a great way to um, begin the, to ensure the future of the field. I think those are all great suggestions, but also I'm I'm about to drop a very scorching hot take of my own, which is drop it. We force our kids to do more than usually one year of some kind of US American history. And if you're lucky, you'll get world history class. Yeah. Well, my take is 
okay, you should be able to opt out of taking U.S. history if you don't want it. Because I was always one of those kids who was like, I don't care. I was like, I mean, I do care. But yeah. I was also like, this is not what my jam is. Yeah. And I just know it's not for me. So I would have given anything in the world to opt out of that in favor of an ancient history course at yeah. the high school level. Oh, because wow. my world history class was great, but it was all like contemporary. And if I want to get to root causes of root world issues, yeah. there's no better place to start than an ancient history class. So respectfully, for all the people who I might have just pissed off by saying don't <laughs> require everyone to take a U.S. history course, yeah. here's the, here, here's my rationale. I'll explain it to you, which is we already like whitewash our own history. We already gloss over a bunch of slavery stuff. We, we gloss mm -hmm. over so much. And, and with the current culture wars with, oh, no, now you can't teach about Juneteenth or, the, you know, whatever. You can't ta teach critical race theory or whatever these people are fighting about. And I'm like, this is just a ridiculous pissing match, in my opinion. But <laughs> We already don't like to talk about it. So I'm kind of like, respectfully, what's the point of teaching me this like super uber whitewashed, almost nationalistic history of the US when I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't, I don't need that. I'm a person of color in this country. I don't really want to sit there and listen to that. So if you provide me with an ancient history course where I can just study the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the ancient yeah. Egyptians, I personally would drive so much more knowledge and history and self-awareness out of that because then I could really take that and then go into, okay, these are root causes. This is where these started. Yeah. Let's go forward. Find the parallels. That That is a hot take. <laughs> I mean, I guess the danger would be if you were to take this ancient history course that you could also get that same whitewashed version, right? And it so really matters who's teaching the class and what the curricular standards are. So, so I hear you on that, but my pushback would be, especially with U.S. history and in particular civics, right? Like, like government, you know, we have a like increasingly clueless citizen body, easily swayed by whatever news program or pundit they hear speaking on television, right? And I don't know the answer to this, like at the primary and secondary. I, I, one thing would be to like eliminate standardized testing. Like if we could find a way to get rid of those kinds of tests and then actually like make the curricula more robust with more history and more ancient history and more civics and more literature, like to me that has the long-term effect of creating a more well-informed citizen body. I feel you on that take, right? I, I don't know, like for me, like when I took US history in high school, I had a good teacher. Um, and again, that's a relative definition, right, of what constitutes a good teacher. And I was preparing for the AP test. And so again, standardized test means we were learning history for a particular goal that I don't think is that great. I think AP tests are, are, are really not great. <laughs> to think of them as an equivalent of a college course is, I think, really, really flawed. So if we could like reimagine how we do primary and secondary without all that testing, that would be a, a, a wonderful, and I know why those tests exist, right? Standards, funding, you know, graduation rates, uh, all of these things. I know those are part of it, right? So I'm not so naive as to say we could just get rid of them all. Yeah, if we could really reimagine education in a, in a way that did more humanities, <laughs> I think we can agree on that. That would be great. You know? but oh, yeah, for you, sure. I, yeah. I mean, I guess, okay, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit and say... Yeah. I'm with you 100%. I've always, always just railed against standardized testing because I hate it. And I think it's stupid. It's, yeah. it's, it does not measure 
your actual intelligence is just, you know, yeah, as you said, it just measures how well you know how to take a test and deal with that. But I will say, I did actually have a quite wonderful U.S. history teacher in high school. I yeah. loved her. I, I'm still friends with her today. I see her on social media. Yeah. Sometimes I run into her. Yeah. We have lovely conversations. I didn't, okay, I didn't hate the class. I really, I did not hate my class. And I still, I learned a lot about it. And I do agree that, you know, keeping our population in the dark at a time where we need to be more civically engaged, it yeah. is critically important. I just think we could reframe it in terms of, if you like create a whole class, a separate class and call it like American government or civic engagement, right? And then you could change the curriculum to include the historical aspects of learning the history behind how our government works and why it does what it does Mm -hmm. and how to be involved and why it's important to be involved. Mm -hmm. So maybe instead of abolishing US history courses or or making them optional, I just think we maybe should at least try to change the way they're currently taught. So that way it's not so much on, because what I feel right now is just, maybe it's because of my recent experience going taking this class let's see when I took it I was a sophomore in high school so this might have been circa 2011 2012 it still shocks me when it's like my history class did not teach me so much what government did other than this is what it looks like you know they they teach you about okay well these are our branches and this is what they do they don't talk about why it's important they don't talk about why we need to be engaged they just say this is what it is and then we're putting it in history and this is revolutionary and I'm like Okay, great. So maybe it's the current form is what I have a problem with, because I think we just need to really reframe that narrative. So I'll go back to the scorching, scorching hot take and say, let's not abolish U.S. history. I'm I'm not trying to piss people off (laughs) at this point. As I see it, 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 it is the duty of historians to really just like throw some random, sometimes great, sometimes super shitty ideas out there. And just start that conversation, because I think we're here to be the drivers of this new conversation to make the world better. So if someone wants to jump down my throat and be like, oh, my goodness, she's trying to cancel U.S. history. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just throwing out like a possibly really shitty suggestion, but that will get you thinking. So no, I, I, love, I love that. Right. And that's that's what what you know discourse should be. Right. We should be able to talk about these things. Right. And I would love to see more music and more art and, you know, uh, f- you know, things in the curriculum uh, that that are gone now, you know, and, and unfortunately, especially in public education, like I wish we I wish more money, you know, went to public education. You know, um, I agree with you. And as someone who has worked in government, studied it, looked at it, I can only say we need massive funding changes. But that is in and of itself a whole conversation. But I, I love this point that we are getting to, which is just we need to start conversations and keep them going to make turn ourselves into something better mm-hmm. something that we would hope is more inclusive than just all around improve an improvement over what's currently here and i think that's a great point to sort of leave that on because i wanted to stew and i want people to really be thinking about this i want to transition now to what i see as my favorite part of the podcast which is yeah. at the end i ask every guest to read the percy shelley version of ozymandias and then yeah. after reading it, it doesn't need to be the most erudite thing you've ever said, but just, you know, quick takes on what is the meaning of this poem? What is it trying to tell us? What lessons can we learn from it? And, you know, what kind of messages does it evoke for you? <laughs> okay. So shall I read the poem then? 
Yes. Whenever you're ready. Here we go. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Wow, that's a great poem. So many thoughts are going through my head. I mean, for one, I just feel like Empires rise and fall, civilizations rise and fall, great people rise and fall. And maybe when that sculpture was made, it was a symbol, a physical manifestation of the greatness of this king and his uh, empire. But now it's broken um, and shattered and just um, surrounded by grains of sand. So, so I, I think that's a lesson in humility for all of us, right? 
any of the things that we do, the culture we're a part of, the civilization we're a part of, it may seem great now, but 3,000, 4,000 years from now, it may be very well like this statue. This is going to sound so strange coming from an academic, but I think one of the most important virtues we need to cultivate in academia is humility. <laughs> and I try, I, I really try, and it's hard, but I think if more of us we're humble about um, our abilities, um, the subjects that we study, then I think we, again, could become our better selves as, a, in, as individuals and as a society. So that's my, my take on that. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. And I have met so many people, classicists, who are very familiar with this poem. And I have met tons who this is perhaps the first time they've ever read it, or maybe they haven't read it since they were in high school or college and they needed a, they hadn't seen it in forever. Just to recap a little bit, this, Shelley wrote this in 1818 about a giant statue. So Ozymandias was actually Ramesses II. Mm -hmm. And Ozymandias is his Greek throne name. They had found this old statue of Ramesses and they were bringing it back to be kept in the British Museum. And he saw it and he was so inspired by this ginormous broken statue that they were hauling back from Egypt. And it was just the, the head buried in sand that they found next to these trunkless legs. And he was like, yeah. I'm going to write this beautifully poetic poem. And then he did. And yeah. now it's there for all time and we love it. But yeah, it really... It speaks to me, yes, humbleness, the fleeting nature of political power. It's so ephemeral. This idea that he thought he was going to be the greatest pharaoh over the greatest civilization that would last thousands of years and be the greatest ever. Clearly, that did not happen. The civilization just kind of melted into the sand and the desert and was lost to time until the little guys, the little people, the chronically underfunded archaeologists who <laughs> spend their time digging because it's a service to humanity and they are just tragically not paid yeah. very well. But we dig it up and we find these things. So, yeah, it's it's definitely this, this argument that you cannot do it alone and your actions, whatever you do now, I mean it stands almost to reason that if you you will be remembered if you do nice things and you're worthy of people's remembrance versus if you just build statues to yourself and then talk about how great you are and then everyone hates you and then they are gladly like okay whatever bye if we are considering the poem from this great stance that you hit right there on humility and just fleeting power stature everything yeah last question that i ask every single guest and it's my favorite question. It really is. Considering our modern society and everything that comes with it, is there a modern Ozymandias, something that's that we think is so great right now that it's going to last forever and be the best thing ever? Realistically, people 2,000 years from now, are they going to look back at us and say, what the hell were they thinking? That's just horrible. Like, ugh. What is that thing? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's a really interesting question. And probably one, whatever I answer, will get me in huge trouble. No, relatively. This is going to sound so weird, but oh, maybe democracy. I don't know. I, I, that's a, that's a, such a profound question. But maybe we'll have figured something out. Not saying that other forms of governance that we have experimented with are any better. Maybe what we think of as the best of the worst or the, the least worst of the best... I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I just don't know. We, we might be doing something very differently 2,000 years from now. Um, 
with respect to governance. But. I mean, I don't think that that's crazy at all. I mean, the, the answers are so varied, right? I mean, people have said capitalism, just yeah. straight up capitalism. I don't think it's wild to suspect that. What if we, okay, everything else kind of sucks right now. I mean, we don't really have anything that's like perfect, the silver bullet, but what if we invent something better than democracy, which I know some people may be shocked at hearing that right now, but say we do invent something that's a lot better than democracy. We could look back and be like, that democracy thing. Yeah, that was like weird. Well, I can sure say that it isn't fascism. That's for sure. You know, that's, (laughs) so whatever it is that we come up with, you know, I hope it again makes us better together and individuals. I hope so too. We we can only hope for a better world that hopefully we can create at some point. Yeah, exactly. So, so thank you so much though, for joining me on the podcast. It's been such a treat to be able to speak with you and just to have this great wide ranging conversation where we kind of drop some hot takes and reimagine (laughs) things and I'm I'm a little sad we didn't get more into your research. Uh, I was trying, but you know the flow of the conversation was just so great. I couldn't I couldn't cut us off. So yeah, it was natural, and I really appreciate that you allowed it to kind of go in different directions. And yeah, I mean from the very start, it's like we were already moving, and and that, that that's a wonderful thing, right? Because we have um, so much to talk about. So yeah, maybe uh, maybe in the future occasion we can talk about my research, but. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be on here. It was really fun. It's always a fun day when I get to meet fellow classes, not only of color, but fellow Asian classicists. It, it reminds me like we do exist. We're here because sometimes, you know, it's it's pretty lonely coming from University of Missouri where I, there may have been one African-American person. But like, honestly, it was like all white people and me. And there's, there's an Asian and an Asian-American classical caucus uh, for the um, Society for Classical Studies. So um i if you're not already on their um email list jump on it okay all right well you've heard it here i luckily i am on their emailing list Great. because yep. it's very important to find my other people's my other fellow asian nerds who nerd out about this stuff but um quickly where can people find you if they would like to contact you yeah, all of my contact information is available on uh, my departmental website. So if you just Google search Young Richard Kim UIC, I think that should come up with my profile. So yeah, love to hear from you. Great. Thank you okay. so much. Thanks, Lexi. It was a pleasure. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.